Tonight, let's turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9, starting at verse number 10. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why does your master eat with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that are whole don't need a doctor, but those that are sick. But go, you, and learn what this means. Then he quotes from the prophet Hosea. Go and learn what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but I am come to call sinners to repentance. Why does your master hang around with publicans and sinners? Jesus says to these religious people, I wish you'd go learn what your Bible says. Go study the prophet Hosea. Chapter 6, verse 6, I believe it is in your Bible, where it says, I want mercy, not sacrifice. Samuel said to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. Isaiah said, what is the purpose of all these new moons and feasts and festivals? I've had enough of them. What is the purpose? Who has required all this of you anyway? I'd rather you learn justice and mercy. Jesus gives a very specific word. He says, I want you Bible theologians. Because the Pharisees were the theologians of the day. I want you to go and study your Bibles. And what does it mean when Hosea said, I will have mercy and not sacrifice? Go to Matthew 12, verses 1 to 8. It says, At that time Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck the ears of the corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, your disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. And he's going to debate Bible with them again. Because he just said earlier, go read your Bibles. He's going to debate Bible with them again. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for those that were with him, but only lawful for the priests. Or, have you not read in the law? Oh, he's going to debate the Bible with them. Have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath day the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say to you that in this place is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, and he's going back to that same verse in Hosea, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not be in the business of condemning innocent people. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. Twice in Matthew's Gospel, he challenges these experts in the Scripture to go read their Bibles. And he challenges them with a particular verse from Hosea. I want mercy, not sacrifice. I'm trying to follow up on what I believe the Holy Spirit has been saying to us as a congregation about mercy. God doesn't want us to work in a spirit of religion. He wants us to work with a heart of mercy. 
doesn't want us to be like Pharisees who judge and condemn innocent people. But he wants us to understand what mercy is. So there's a negative side to this message and there's a positive side. The negative side is an operation called pharisectomy. Ever heard such a word? Pharisectomy. I'm going to cut out the Pharisee in us. How's that sound? And um, that's the negative part. The positive part is learning what mercy is all about. Learning what mercy. We're not going to get it all done tonight. This is just a series that's happening here. Nobody can read the Gospels, especially Matthew, all of them, but Matthew especially, without observing there's a major conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees constantly. They're against his teaching. They are bitter, violent antagonists against everything that Jesus did. You know them by the name of the Pharisees. How do these people get to be this way? Who are they and how do they come to be like this? Because the truth is there's plenty of Pharisees in the world today. Plenty of them. So a little history lesson. I gave you a little history lesson this morning how the world was prepared for the coming of Christ. A little history lesson again today, tonight about... um, how the Pharisees came to be Pharisees. They began with pure enough motives. Their beginnings are not exactly clear. There's no, you can't find a historical record of when they actually began. But they are mentioned in literature in the second century BC. And that was in a very turbulent time of history for the Jew in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, in the days when the Greeks ruled ruled the world, there was a man, have you ever heard of this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes? How many have heard the name? Antiochus Epiphanes. Come on, say that with me. Antiochus (laughs) Epiphanes. That was his name. They sure gave him good names back in those days, didn't they? Who was he? He was a leader of the Greek Empire. In modern age, you would call him Hitler. He was a Greek Hitler of the day. His goal was to rid the world of Judaism. His goal was to do away with Judea and do away with Palestine and make them completely, by force, Hellenistic or Greek. He was going to force them to adopt Greek culture, Greek language, Greek philosophy, Greek wisdom. But listen to what he did. He sacked Jerusalem, butchered the Jews by the thousands, and then offered sacrifices of unclean swine upon the altar of the Lord. Sacrifice swine to the Greek god of Zeus in the temple of the Lord. You can imagine how the Jews responded to this. They were horrified, outraged. They organized themselves into military groups. And against all odds, this is is a, a thing of absolute miracle faith happening here, Against all odds, the vastly outnumbered Jews, with much fighting and much violent bloodshed, actually regain their freedom for a a short period. They organized under a man that the Jews to this day revere as a hero. That name is Judas Maccabeus. Have you ever heard of that name? If you are familiar with the literature called the Apocrypha, you would recognize there's several books in there. First Maccabees, Second Maccabees, so on and so on. Named after this hero, Judas Maccabeus. In 165 BC, for a short period of time, the Jews gained their liberty and their freedom from such an evil man as, what's his name? 
Antiochus Epiphanes. <laughs> All right. There's actually a reference to some of this history in your Bible. Go to just Hebrews 11, and I'll just show you where there's a reference to this in your Bible. Hebrews chapter 11, that great chapter on faith. You would read in verse number 35 what it says about some heroes of faith. But the heroes of faith that it's talking about in verse 35 were people who lived between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And when it says women received their dead raised to life again, but when it goes to this and says others were tortured and not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Just look it up in commentaries if you like, and it tells you who that's talking about. That's talking about people who lived in the time of Judas Maccabeus. Because what you have there, this is a reference, when it says they were tortured, oh, if you could read that in the Greek language, it's awful. It means stretched like a skin drum, and then beat to death. In other words, they put you on the rack and they stretch you and they beat you till you're dead. That's what the word torture there actually refers to. And when it says others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that's actually a reference to a scribe, a priest, that lived about 200 B.C., whose name was Eliezer. He was an older man. He had high character. He was noble in character. He was high position. And they were forcibly opening his mouth and making him eat swine, which is unclean to the Jew. He spit it out, knowing that if he spit it out, he's going to go to the rack and be tortured to death. Because he was an old man, they offered him some clean meat that he would be allowed to eat, but he had to pretend it was pork. He refused to do that, and as a result... They put him to death on the rack, and he feared the judgment of God more than the violence of men. He did not accept deliverance. There's another story of that same period of history where there's a mother who had seven sons. And that mother with seven sons watched before her eyes as each one of them were tortured and put to death in front of her eyes for refusing to eat pork. And she was proud of the death of every one of her seven sons. They did not accept deliverance. Because they believed in the resurrection to come. I mean, these are, these are powerful stories. And it's in that time of history, in that turbulent time of history, that this group known as the Pharisees make their entrance into the world. That's when this group called the Pharisees came about. The word Pharisee means they are a separated one. They're the pious ones. Some history books refer to them by the name of the Hasidians. And uh, some of them were fighters alongside of Judas Maccabeus getting for the freedom of Judea from the Greek Empire. Through the years of turbulence and world empire changes that happened 200 years prior to Jesus being born, these Pharisees became a very powerful political party, a religious party, and they remained so right up into the time that Jesus was born. Now the common person looked upon the Pharisees as heroes. These were heroes. These were people who were dedicated to delivering us from the oppression of the Gentiles. And in the light of Old Testament teaching, which the scribes and the Pharisees would be expounding upon, they viewed this political chaos, this interference of, of Persia and Babylon and, and Greek and, and, and the Roman, they, they view those as punishment or judgment from God for failing to observe the laws of Moses. Because it would say that if you serve other gods, that God would give you over to the chastisement of other nations. And they would read those scriptures and they looked upon these Babylons and Persians and Greeks and Romans and everybody who interfered with them as the judgment of God for failing to observe the law. So something has to be done to get the nation back on track. And with that mindset, enter the birth of the Pharisees. They had an agenda 
to get the nation back on track so that the nation could once again enjoy God's favor and be rid of all of this foreign oppression. So therefore, the Pharisees who were dedicated to this goal, they were admired by the people. The people appreciated the goal that they represented, which is the restoration of the blessing of God. And the reasoning was this. If we would follow every letter of the law and get back to observing the law, then God has no choice but to bless them. One out of every ten men was a member of the Pharisees. There were many admirable things about those Pharisees. I mean, we often give them only bad press, but you know what? There's very admirable things about them because they accepted the Scriptures and they devoted their life to study the Scripture. How many know that's a good thing? How many know we could copy them in that respect? They devoted their lives to the study of Scripture. They were careful. They were meticulous students. They gave themselves to good charitable work. How many know that's a good thing to do? They devoted themselves to charity They look forward to the coming of the Messiah. They believed in angels. They believed in spirit. They believed in life after death. Things that other religious groups did not believe in. And with the Christian faith, everything that I just said, every Christian would agree with all of that today. They believe much the same as Christians today would believe. Most of the scribes, when you hear that word scribe, They were actually Pharisees who were professional interpreters and teachers of the law. Most of the people, of course, had no formal education. Most of the people could not read for themselves necessarily. And they were very dependent upon the teaching of the scribes. And in the midst of this violent oppression, there was just a yearning in the people. Can't we just live simple lives? Can't we just live pure, separated lives? How can we get separate from all these worldly influences? How can we just enjoy and respect our faith? And they tended to join together in closed communities. And those communities had strict rules of admission. And you had to demand or give commitment to their laws of purity. And they tended only to relate to each other. They didn't like to relate to others outside their group. But they were committed to both the laws of Moses and they were committed to the teaching of the scribes. They had their regular meetings. They were organized under the leadership of the scribe. And the Pharisees were the major grassroots party of the common people. You have to understand they began as heroes. They began as heroes. Heroes. And then, nearly 200 years after they had come in, several generations had passed. Then enters Jesus. Then you have the Gospels coming in into this religious world where the Pharisees seem to rule. And apparently, he figures that the Pharisees, no matter how sincere they were in the beginning, obviously got the whole thing wrong. So much so that they hated Jesus, violently brutal to him, and there was war between them and Jesus all the way through. He urged the Pharisees toward a true understanding of the law. You read about Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong on a variety of different things. Jesus challenged their official rulings. He debated with them like a lawyer. He warned against their teaching. He called their interpretation as leaven to be avoided. And he set his own interpretation over their prevailing views. Go to the Sermon on the Mount with me in Matthew chapter 5. And the actions of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the manner of Jesus, was so totally different than what the scribes and the Pharisees did, that people began to think that Jesus has no concern or respect for the laws of Moses at all. And that's why he would say in chapter 5 and verse 17, Don't think 
that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I haven't come to destroy them. I have come that they might be fulfilled. I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. But from their point of view, Jesus' teaching was such nonsense that if that teaching of Jesus gets out, he is going to lead the nation back into the awful judgment of God. That was the view of the Pharisees. Because if you ask what is the great commandment, you know how Jesus gave the answer. The great commandment to Jesus was you to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is you should love your neighbor as yourself. But if you ask the Pharisee that question, what is the great commandment, they had a different answer. To the Pharisee, the answer was, you shall be holy, for the Lord is holy. And they both got different starting points as to what the foundation of the law is. Therefore, they were conflicted on almost every interpretation of the law. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is going to give six examples of how the Jews or the Pharisees gave an interpretation and how he interpreted the laws. I'll come to that in a little bit later. But one of the great things we're going to recognize is that according to Jesus, the law is supposed to be written on the tables of your heart. But to the Pharisees, as long as it was written on tables of stone, that was fine. But Jesus says, no, it's supposed to be written and revealed in your heart. But I will come back to that. What Jesus is basically saying is, I need to rescue the law from the hands of the Pharisees who have misunderstood it and abused it. And ended up teaching a legalism and a religion that condemns and destroys innocent people. And I need to rescue the law from their interpretation. Let me show you how the Pharisees thought. We've got to obey God. So they emphasized devotion to the Lord. And they became so careful about breaking a commandment that they built fences around it. For instance... Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, the fourth commandment. Well, what does that mean? That means no hard work on the Sabbath day. That's how their thinking was. No unnecessary hard work on the Sabbath day. Oh, Jesus liked to challenge that in the Gospel of John because when they wanted to attack Jesus about working on the Sabbath day, isn't there six days a week you can heal? I like Jesus' response. Um, does anybody ever get born on the Sabbath day? Does anybody ever die on the Sabbath day? Oh, so God works on the Sabbath. They didn't know what to do with that. They, they, oh, God works on the Sabbath. He causes babies to be born. He causes rain to fall. He causes people to die on the Sabbath day. God works on the Sabbath. They weren't quite sure what to do with that. No wonder they hated Jesus when he challenged some of their their thinking like that. But you're not supposed to do any hard work on the Sabbath day. And just to make sure that you never broke the law, what they did is they built a fence around the law and which they would tell you how far you could walk. And then if you just obeyed that distance, then you know you never broke the law. So you per- And they built all of these laws, these applications, this fence around the law, so that when you kept all of these things, you were so far removed from the law that you know you never broke it. (laughs) They ended up, listen to this, with 248 commandments added and 365 prohibitions added just to make sure you didn't get close enough to the law to break it. Ouch. Let me go with that example of keeping the Sabbath day holy. And I'm not making this up. You can, if you want to read the history, you can look this stuff up yourself. How am I going to keep the Sabbath day holy? Well, that means no hard work. But I have to figure out what is considered work. And then what is considered hard work. When is work considered hard 
what is work? And so they have to give a definition of work means labor, but labor can be many things. So they divided the concept of labor into eight different categories. One category of labor was lifting and carrying something. And just to make sure you didn't break the law, they told you how much weight you were allowed to lift. And I'm not making this up. If you lift it with one hand and put it back where you found it, that was acceptable. But if you lift it with one hand, changed hands and put it in another place, that was not acceptable because you were using more muscles. You think I'd be making this stuff up. But I'm not making it up. There was lifting and there was putting down as two acts of work. And when you lift it up, you lift it up from a public place or a private place. What's the definition of a private place and what's the definition of a public place? On and on and on the reasoning goes. No wonder Jesus looked at the people and said, Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I had the privilege of going to Israel once. I was there. I was there on the Sabbath day. It's interesting. I was in a hotel. And you know, on the Sabbath day, all the computer or the elevators are computerized, so that on the Sabbath day, so you don't have to do the work of pushing the button. The elevator would just automatically open every floor, and the doors would open and close, and go to the next floor, open and close, and go to the next floor, open and close. Only on the Sabbath. The other days, you have to push the button. But just so you don't have the unnecessary work. You think I'd be making this up. It's just immense, the kinds of things. Oh, by the way, if you wanted to know how much weight you were permitted to lift, a fig. The weight of a fig was permissible. More than that was a violation of the Sabbath. Oh, dear. No wonder Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden. Now, we would laugh at this, but we might get very uncomfortable when I show you the same spirit in tradition. You might get very nervous when we start to explore some church's attitudes of what's righteous and what's not righteous. It can get very nerve-wracking because it's the same method of interpretation. It's scary stuff. And we end up condemning innocent people. And we end up actually creating obstacles to people coming to the Lord. Our holiness stands in the way of evangelism. But we'll skip that because I'm too nervous to talk about that. This interpretation of the law of building the fence around all of the Ten Commandments became known as the Mishnah. You hear about the Torah, which means the original law, and the Mishnah is their interpretation. The Mishnah is all these fences, these rules they put around so you never violate the law. But the trouble is, in time, what happens is this. And this has happened to the Pharisees, and this happens to Pentecostal people, and this happens to all sorts of churches. That in time, when we start passing our faith down from generation to generation, we pass on the fences we have created and not the word of the Lord. Is that right? We pass along the fences we have created and not the word of the Lord. God, make people go quiet, I tell you. In time, over generations, it develops into a narrow way of thinking where people think they are the guardians of righteousness. Matter of fact, it's the only way. And they have elevated their fences to the law. This is a shift away from the spirit and the intent of of the law and to the letter of the law. And godliness is now measured by how well you conform to my standards. Am I talking about Pharisees or am I talking about 
more modern thinking sometimes. Three things can be noted. I want to show you three areas how Jesus differed with the Pharisees on interpreting the law. Go back to Matthew 5 where I said we go back to. The first truth is this. According to Jesus, righteousness is never attained by outward legislation. Righteousness is never attained by outward legislation. Righteousness is an internal matter. Jesus makes that plain in Matthew chapter 5. He's going to give six examples after he says in verse 17, Don't think that I've come to destroy the law of the prophets. I haven't come to destroy it. I've come to fill it to the full. I've come to give it meaning. I'm going to rescue it from the way the Pharisees have taught it. And I'm going to give you the true interpretation. In verse number 20, for instance, or 21, it says, You have heard that it was said by them of old time. Verse number 22, But I say unto you. When it says them of old time, he's referring to the scribes and the Pharisees. He's not saying, this is what Moses taught, and now I'm here to contradict Moses. Jesus does not contradict Moses. It's just as wrong for you to murder somebody under grace as it is to murder somebody under the law. It's wrong. Grace or no grace. Law or grace is wrong to commit murder. He's not saying, this is what Moses taught, but here's what I'm teaching. Let me say, grace and law agree. They're not opposites, they agree. Grace is not the absence of righteousness. Grace is the empowerment for righteousness in your life. It's not the absence of it, it's empowerment for it. But how do we get it is the the different question. It says in verse 21, the example of the sixth commandment. You've heard that it's said by them of old time. Here's how the Pharisees and the scribes teach. The Sixth Commandment. And the Sixth Commandment is you shall not kill. Or in modern English, it's better to say you shall not murder. It doesn't condemn all killing. It condemns murder of innocent blood. You shall not commit a murder. Their interpretation was anybody who kills needs to go to court and go through the judicial process to determine guilt or innocence in the case of a murder. But Jesus says... But I say unto you. Now, before we look at what he says, keep your finger in chapter 5 and flip over to chapter 15 and verse number 19. In chapter 15, again, this is a debate with the Pharisees and the scribes about what's clean and what's unclean. Because Jesus is eating bread without first washing hands. Lo and behold, in chapter 14, he just fed 5,000. I don't suppose any of them washed their hands first. (laughs) And they see Jesus, this awful revolution, violating the laws of Moses. Jesus, don't you know, that brings us into the judgment of God. And we'll never get rid of the Romans if you're telling the people they can eat bread by the multitudes of thousands at a time without washing their hands. I mean, they were quite concerned. But Jesus would say, the heart is the issue. Verse number 8, quoting from Isaiah, The people draw nigh to me with their mouth, with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But verse 19 is what I'm after. Chapter 15, verse 19. Out of the... Out of what? Out of the heart. Okay, let's look what comes out of the heart. Evil thoughts. Next thing it says is murder. Tell me, what is the sixth commandment? You shall not murder. What else comes out of the heart? What's next? Adulteries and fornications. Who can tell me what the seventh commandment just might be? Okay, what's next coming out of the heart? Oh, tell me what the eighth commandment might be. You shall not steal. What else comes out of the heart? Anybody want to guess what the ninth commandment might be? You shall not bear false witness. And here in verse number 19, what you have is Jesus going through the Ten Commandments and he shows the issue is man's heart. 
He's a murderer because it's in his heart. He's an adulterer because it's in his heart. He's a thief because it's in his heart. He's a liar. He's a false witness because that's what's in his heart. And so what Jesus is going to do is he's going to take the law and he's not going to examine your external behavior. What he's going to do is look on the inside of your heart. Ooh. Now how many would just prefer he to look on the outside? Now the Pharisees would prefer that because the heart, it says in Jeremiah, is deceitfully wicked. And who can know it? But here's the difference. The Pharisees only want to legislate their interpretation of the law to your externals. So holiness is now defined on how long your hair is or how long your dress is or, or how you, whether you wear a tie or not or, 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 or. It's all external where Jesus doesn't do that. What Jesus does is he's going to look inside your heart. Now with that in mind, let's go back to Matthew 5. They said, if you commit murder, you go to trial. But Jesus says, but I say unto you, verse 22, whoever is angry with his brother. The words without a cause, by the way, are not in the original language. Because that means if I had a cause, I get to be angry. Whoever is angry, period, needs to go to trial. Whoever can say to his brother, Raka. Now that's a hard word to translate into English. It's more a voice of contempt. Or whoever can say, you fool. Nobody's ever said anything in a fit of anger like that, have you? Anybody? (laughs) Is this room safe to be in? (laughs) Because I have just discovered I am in a room full of murderers. (laughs) Because what you have here, what Jesus says, that murder shows up as anger, as contempt, as the ability just to speak without thinking, and the attitudes of the heart. Murder is alive and well inside your heart. And the only reason you have not actually committed a physical murder is because the law would demand your death if you did that. So the penalty of the law stops you from committing physical murder, but the law can take murder out of your heart. Did you catch that? So I might want to control you externally by by all these laws that I make, but I can't get rid of the murder that's in your heart and Jesus is going to apply the law to the thoughts the intents, the motives the thoughts, the inclination the attitudes that are in your heart he's going to search your emotions your intentions your motives and he's going to shine his law into those areas of your mind and your heart how many have discovered it's easier to be a Pharisee and when Jesus does this, now you think that's hard. Well, if I skip down to verse number 27. You've heard it said by them of old time. Here's your Pharisees going again. You shall not commit adultery. And they don't even have any commentary on it. Just don't commit adultery. But I say unto you, if a man looks on a woman for the purpose of lusting after her, Adultery is alive and well in the person's heart. Here's the great difference. Now, I could go through all six examples, but I won't because you're getting the point. But let's put it this way. If I did go through every ten commandments, all ten of the commandments, and if I did search your heart, your motives, your intentions, your feelings, your, your opinions, your attitudes, by all ten commandments... By the time we're done, are there any righteous people? Are there anybody innocent? Or 
are you thoroughly undone and absolutely thoroughly convicted? That's the purpose of the law, to convict of sin. It can't make you righteous, but it sure can reveal your lack of it. But it has no power to make you righteous. Now here's the difference between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees only wanted to apply the law and turn it into a tradition of code of behavior external. Jesus isn't going to do that. What Jesus is going to do is he's going to make sure the law gets written on the tables of your heart. Righteousness is not measured by external behavior. Righteousness is measured by grace in your heart. And what he's going to do is he's going to take the pen of the Holy Spirit and write the law inside your heart. So it becomes your motive, it becomes your attitude, it becomes your thought, and you are operating out of a new heart that has the righteousness of God written on the new heart. And the very same words that used to be a command that you could not keep now become a promise. Listen, it's all a tone of voice. Let me be a Pharisee. You shall not commit adultery. And we're all shaking in our boots. We shall not commit adultery. Or I could be like Jesus and say, tell you what, I'll take out the old heart. I'll give you a new heart. And I will put my spirit inside of you. And there's going to be a promise written on you. You will not commit adultery. What used to be a command by the Spirit of God, has now become a promise. You shall not commit adultery. It's amazing. just all tone of voice. Is it external or is it internal? This is the important. Let me give you a variety of scriptures and it's worth reading these. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 9. Moses understood this. Moses understood. Deuteronomy 5, verse number 9, where he says... Uh, verse 29, sorry, 529. Oh, that there were such a heart in them. He gives all the commandments and he says, I just wish now they had the heart for it. Oh, that there was such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always. Look what he says in chapter 30 and verse 6 of Deuteronomy. Chapter 30 and verse 6, where he prophesies that they won't keep the law and God's going to have to rescue them. And in chapter 30, verse 6, he says, and when you get rescued, he says, and the Lord will circumcise your heart. Jeremiah says the problem is this, chapter 17, 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? I, the Lord, try the reins of the heart. That's what I'm looking after. But I like this one in Psalm chapter 40. One of my favorite psalms here. Psalm chapter 40, verses 6, 7 and 8. It says this. Sacrifice and offering you don't desire. Imagine saying that to God who told Moses to give all these sacrifices. But David says, but that's not what God is after. The sacrifice of bull and sheep and all that was the necessary thing to cover evil, to cover sin. But don't think that God takes pleasure in the blood of bulls and goats. That's not what he's after. It's a a legal necessity until Jesus would come and deal with the question of your sin. But God's not into bulls and goats. Tell you what he is into. Sacrifice and offering you don't desire. You've opened my ears. Burnt offering and sin offering is not what you require. Well, what is God after? Though I said I come in the volume of the book it's written of me. What is God after? I delight to do your will, O my God. Yea, your law is within my heart. That's what God's into, having the law written on the tables of your heart. Chapter 31, verse number 37. No, chapter 37, verse 31 it must be. The law of his God is in his heart. That's what God wants. You see, Ezekiel 36, 26, 27, listen to what the gospel is. Since man's problem is his heart, God says, I will take out that stony heart. I'll take it out. And I will put a new heart, a fleshly heart, 
in its place. Then he says, and I will put my laws by the pen of the Holy Spirit. I will write my laws upon the tables of your heart. And because they become living principles within your heart, it will cause you to live in righteousness. It's not if you do it. It's by a change of heart, change of desire, change of motivation, by the power of the Holy Spirit within you, I cause you to live in righteousness. It's a wonderful promise that it is. Don't you know that out of the abundance of the heart we speak? Don't you know that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he? Don't we know that the scripture says to guard, keep your heart with all diligence because out of it proceed all the issues of life? So there's one major difference between Jesus and the Pharisees is where the law is supposed to be written. It's supposed to be engraved as a life principle that empowers you in your heart. Righteousness proceeds from a changed heart with the laws of God etched in by the power of the Holy Spirit. Changing your nature. Changing your desires. Phariseeism just has a code of ethics that becomes a standard of righteousness by which we judge everybody else. That's the major difference. The second major difference between Jesus and the Pharisees, and this is just common sense, is that you have to know the intention behind every law. The intention behind the law. Let me give you an example. Is it ever wrong to speed? Let's suppose the limit is 60 mile an hour. Is it ever right to speed? I'm going to make you think. I want you to think here because Jesus asked these kind of questions. Did God work on the Sabbath day? Did he cause anybody to be born on the Sabbath? Is it ever permissible to break the speed limit? Just think for a second, there's an accident. If there's an accident and you have to be in the hospital within 10 minutes or the guy's dead, but you are 30 miles away, you'll never do it on the speed limit. Would you be breaking the law by speeding that person to the hospital? Yes. Here's the principle, is that the application of the law must match the intent of the law. Let me say it again. The application must must match the intent. The purpose of the law is to save life. That's why there's a speed limit, to save life. But what happens if keeping that limit actually destroys a life? Is the ambulance driver restricted to the speed limit? (laughs) Will he ever get a police escort to break the speed limit? You follow what I'm saying here is sometimes we just have rules without thinking of why those rules are there. What's the intention behind them? Now I'm giving you the example about speeding, but let me get into a serious one for which we can create a lot of controversy. Deuteronomy 24 talks about divorce and remarriage. Now, should I put my armor on before I proceed any further? (laughs) And in Deuteronomy 24, divorce permitted remarriage. And if Moses thought remarriage after divorce was adultery, then he's contradicted himself because he tells people how to get remarried after they're divorced. And if they divorce their second wife, the law in Deuteronomy 24 forbids them to go back to their first wife. Didn't say they couldn't marry a third. No, I need my armor on for this. Now, in Deuteronomy 24, Jesus gives, or Moses gives, a reason and allowance concerning divorce. If a man find any unclean thing in his wife or something, or 
whatever, and the, the scribes were divided over what was considered an unclean thing and what allowed divorce, what didn't. But the fact is that Moses gave an allowance for divorce that permitted remarriage after it. It's there in Deuteronomy 24. But the Pharisees took that verse and they divorced it from the intent of why Moses gave this allowance. Now why would Moses permit divorce? Because the fact is, if divorce was not permitted, we just arrange for accidents. In other words, we murder them. We make sure they have a car crash. The fact is that some men have no intention of ever getting it right. Have no intention of honoring God. Have no intention of living righteously. And have no intention of treating their wife properly. And the fact is that woman could be physically abused, mentally abused, emotionally abused, and could die accidentally in a car accident. So to avoid the evil of murder, God permits divorce. Because it's the lesser of two evils. It is an evil, but it's the lesser of two evils. Instead of forcing a woman to live in misery her whole life or in abuse in the whole life, Moses permitted divorce. It's an evil, but he permitted it to happen. Now, the Pharisees read this and said, oh, divorce. And they didn't see the reason why Moses gave their permission. And they asked Jesus in Matthew 19, you know, is it all right to divorce a woman for any cause? And Jesus, well, you know, from the beginning, God had intended. And let, you know what God has put together, let no man put asunder. But people do put it asunder. They said, well, Moses gave us a command for divorce. But wait a second, Moses gave no such command. There's no command to divorce. It's permission. And there's a big difference between permission and a command. Because in Matthew chapter 5, what the Pharisees were doing is they took this divorce allowance of Deuteronomy 24 and they twisted it from the intention why Moses gave it in the first place and they came up with this kind of reasoning. They came up with this. I'm tired of my wife. There's another younger version over there. (laughs) And I have lust in my heart. I'm tired of having to work at relationship. I'd rather just do that. I don't have to work at it and just satisfy my lust. Oh, but I can't do that because I'm a married man. Oh, that's all right. Moses permitted divorce. And so I will give my wife a divorce which frees me to pursue my lust. And what they did is they took a, 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 a law of Moses, they separated it from its intent, and then they made it serve their own sin. And they actually used the law to serve the power of sin in themselves. Jesus wouldn't allow that. Jesus would make the point, if you're going to properly understand the law, you can never separate it from the intent for which it was given, or you're abusing it. And the Pharisees were great at abusing the law. And Jesus had to rescue that from their faulty interpretation. The third area where Jesus differed with the Pharisees and how to interpret the law was what was the foundation of it. As I said earlier, you asked the Pharisees, their foundation was, you should be holy. For the Lord is holy, therefore holy. There's two things that the holiness movement does not have. One is holiness, and the other is movement. (sighs) What happens is it becomes dead letter that strangles people to death. The purpose of the law is to show how to express love. Matthew 7, verse 12, love your neighbor, you know, do good unto your neighbor, do unto your neighbor as you would have them do unto you, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, how, how did we miss that? 
when this lawyer came to Jesus and asked what's the great question, he wanted the answer, be holy, but Jesus gave a different answer. What's the great commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor and yourself. For on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, the purpose of the law is to teach you how in the midst of a fallen, sinful world, what it looks like to walk in love. How did we miss that? And instead of teaching people from the law how to live and in, in lo- work out the reality of loving your neighbor, how do we miss that, the turning religion into traditions with commands and rules and regulations, and you've got to conform to this before you can be accepted, how did we get there? I tell you how we get there. We start on the wrong premise. We think the purpose of the law is to teach holiness. No, the purpose of the law is to teach love. And you'll find out that holiness is Love. When you walk in love, you are holy. That's what true holiness is. It's character. It's love in your heart. That's what holiness is. Now, let me give you an example here. The Ten Commandments. The first four of the Ten Commandments tell you how to honor and love God. The last six of the Ten Commandments tell you how to love your neighbor. Before I look at these few of these commandments, find the scripture with me, Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, it's the promise of a new covenant that's going to come. Let's start in chapter 31, verse 31 of Jeremiah. It says, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke. Now listen to this. Although I was a husband unto them. I want you to hear that. The commandment. I was a husband unto them. I want you to think of the Ten Commandments not as a legalism to control Well, everything you want to do, but you can't because the commandments won't let you. As much as your wedding vows. When you gave your vows the day you got married, I promised to be true to you and you only. Um, Did you put yourself under legalism? You consider that a bondage? Or is it the expression of a heart full of love. Because I love you, I will be true to you and no one else. You follow what I'm saying here? The commandments are the expressions of a covenant of love. And if you could understand that, then you see these commandments are not taking away your freedom. They're giving you liberty. They're giving you liberty. For instance, let's go to Exodus 20, and I'll just run through a couple of them to show you how this works. Exodus chapter 20, the list of the Ten Commandments. Commandment number one is found in verse number three. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. Oh dear, I feel bound up already. No, you don't. If you are getting married, you say this, because... I love you. I will have no other man, no other woman in my life except you. My whole heart and my whole soul is with you. Is that legalism? Or is that the expression of love? Now the second commandment, verses 4 to 6, is don't have any graven images or any likeness of that. Don't have these graven images and and, and so on. And Well, let me put it this way. It's your wedding day. So you say, because I love you, I will not carry around pictures of former girlfriends in my pocket. (laughs) I will not be looking at them to stir up my emotions of this old love life I used to have. Now, is that legalism? When it says, have no graven images, in the context of a marriage covenant, it says, I'm not carrying around pictures of old flames. 
I'm not going to allow my life to be emotionally and mentally attached to past things in my life from which I've been delivered. Now, is that grievous commandment? Or is that just common sense? But it, it's, it makes no sense if you're not in love. No, it's just a rule i got to follow. What's the purpose of this rule? But when it is love, of course I'll burn the pictures, never mind just not carry them around. I'll destroy those foreign gods. I'll destroy those altars. I'll destroy everything that used to possess my soul. Why? For love's sake. And it's a joy to do it when love is the motive. Well, let's take the third commandment, verse number 7. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So later you're getting married and you're going to take His name. Because I love you, and because my name now becomes Mrs. whatever you're marrying, I will not jeopardize your name. I will not jeopardize your reputation in any way. I will work to maintain the dignity of your name before everyone I meet. I, as I take your name, I'll carry it with honor and I will never misuse it. Why? Because I love you. Is that a grievous thing? Well, I like the next one, the fourth commandment, verses 8 to 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Oh, there we go. Have I got my armor on in this one now? Because, oh, here's of all the Ten Commandments, this one's going to get the most discussion of all the Ten. The Sabbath day, is it Saturday or is it Sunday? And uh, what's permissible behavior on Sunday? You know, um, no work. Um, some people don't go to a restaurant because you're making other people work. I figure I can go to a restaurant and they don't care about the Sabbath, so I don't have to work. I mean, it, we just go on and on and on about what's acceptable. You can't go swimming, you can't play a game, you can't... And on and on and on it goes. And you miss the point entirely. Yeah, you do nothing on the Sabbath afternoon except watch television. I mean, as if that was a spiritual thing. You know, at least I didn't work. <laughs> you know. I mean, and on and on this kind of stuff goes. But remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Let's turn it now into words of a wedding vow and put it this way. Because I love you, I will guard my time so that we always have a special place for the two of us to retreat. Where there's no intrusion, where we can refresh one another and fill each other's emotional wells, nurse each other in spirit, soul, and body. Now does it make sense? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Now you're getting the point? It's intimacy. It's intimacy. Guard your time of intimacy with your spouse. Guard your alone time with each other so you can nourish each other, spirit, soul, and body. Now it makes sense, doesn't it? Now all of a sudden, oh, that's a grievous thing. I've got to have time with my wife. You know, just all terrible, you know. Uh, if you understand that the motive behind all of this is how to preserve and walk in love, then these things are not grievous. But actually, they liberate you. They free you up. Because of these vows and these promises and because we enter into a covenant with each other when we get married because marriage is a covenant of companionship. Because of the covenant, I'm free. I'm free to be vulnerable. I'm free to expose the depths of my heart because I've been covenant with somebody who will never ridicule or reject me no matter what she may find there. That frees me up to be me. Without the covenant, I'm not free to grow. I'm not free to expose myself. But in the covenant, there's freedom. So we need to understand these commandments are about life. These commandments are about love. These commandments are about freedom. And that's how Jesus interpreted the whole law. The whole law is to teach you about love. Love God and love your neighbor. It's written in your heart, energizes you for righteousness, changes your desires, and that's what true righteousness is.
God, would you write your laws in my heart? And when that happens, when God renovates your character, then these laws inside your heart, teaching you how to love, demand that you show mercy to people. Because it's expressing love. But when these laws and commandments have become standards of righteousness by which we judge other people because of how you dress or how you behave yourself or how you talk and all of that, we've missed the point entirely. It's all about love. And that's how Jesus interpreted the laws of Moses. It's all about love. We need to be free from pharisaical approach to reading the scriptures. We need to be free from just inheriting a tradition and we have no idea why we do things. Let's not pass on the fences we create for our own sake to protect ourselves from breaking the law. Let's not pass on those fences to the next generation. Let's teach them how to love. And let the Spirit of God teach the next generation how to work it out in the environment in which they find themselves. Otherwise, down the road, Pentecost becomes one of the most legalistic expressions of religion. And we end up condemning the innocent. God teaches how to love. So Jesus said to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I want mercy. Not sacrifice. Interesting Bible, isn't it? Love that Bible. Love that Bible.